you will, turn back in your Bibles. Romans chapter 1 is where we will be. Romans 1 through 16 will be our primary text for the year 2024. So for those of you who have never had a theological excursion through the book of Romans, you get a chance to join us. Romans is an anthology of the gospel in all of its glory through a man that God raised up to write 70 to 80 percent of the New Testament. We might well say that a Christian will never be grounded in sound doctrine that does not take the book of Romans seriously. GBC Hayward at gmail.com. GBC Hayward at gmail.com will allow you to join in on a conversation with hundreds of us as we go through the Pilgrim's Progress in the Book of Romans. GBC Hayward at gmail.com. If you really want to grow this year in what it means to walk with Christ through a Roman type society, join us in that journey. This is what we will be dealing with Tuesdays and Fridays and Sundays, helping the people of God anchor more deeply into the gospel proper and to build discernment as to what it means to walk in a wicked world that hates Christ. If you've never been immersed into the book of the Pilgrim's Progress, I blame your pastors because beside the Bible, the book of Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most salient books to learn about the Pilgrim's Walk. Because we are in the book of Romans for the next 52 weeks forthcoming, we will be carrying the tension between the journey of the pilgrim and the people of God through the Roman Empire in the first century, making application to that same empire system today. I hope that you will give ears to hear. I gave you the email address so that you can get in, and I'm hoping for those of you who are already on our list, give it to your loved ones who think they know the gospel and have them join us. You guys will get outlines in that email. You will get PDFs and some resources to help you dig down deep into uh, the journey of the believer, the pilgrim's progress through the book of Romans. I'm looking forward to the conversations. I'm looking forward to the responses. I'm looking forward to the people of God putting on the lenses of scripture truth and to see more deeply and more accurately what is taking place in our world. Now, the book of Romans can properly be understood as God's righteousness revealed across the totality of his purpose in the world. So let me establish that a little bit before you, because, you know, we don't know terms. I know that. God's righteousness is the intrinsic characteristic of his own being that is expected on God's part towards his moral creatures 
who are obligated to obey God and walk with God in a moral and ethical framework of obedience to him. When we use the term righteousness, we're talking about God's moral standard, a moral standard that proceeds from God's character. It is not existential to him. It is coextensive with his being. You're going to learn a lot about righteousness over this series because Paul uses it 33 times in the book of Romans. And if it is 16 chapters long as it is, the term righteousness comes up over and over again because righteousness is the character of God. Righteousness is the goal of his people. Righteousness is the cause of their salvation and righteousness is the fruit of their life when they know Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And the way Paul vectors this out into the realm of the Roman Empire is given to us in our theme verse for this year. And that will be Romans chapter 1. Verse 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the dunamis of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. Because in the gospel... It encapsulates God's righteousness. No one knows righteousness properly that does not know the gospel. The gospel of God is contained in and is being revealed, Paul says, this is the present indicative verb form. It is being revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So this year, you and I get to understand more fully and accurately and biblically what righteousness is. So we are not merely parroting terms that we don't know. Remember, that is not good for us. A parable in the mouth of a fool is not good. So we are going to learn what righteousness means. We're going to learn what it is. We're going to learn its origin. We're going to learn its eschatological aim. We're going to learn its virtuous impact in our lives Righteousness is going to come up over and over again in order to help you and I distinguish between the righteousness of God and the pseudo righteousness of men. This is Paul's whole discourse is to help you and I understand that the righteousness of God is revealed in the person of Christ for salvation to everyone that believes. The title of our message for today, as we begin to work our way into three fundamental points, is the righteousness of God promised and the righteousness of God what? It's promised and it's preached. Now, this is extracted explicitly from the text in front of us. We'll see this in Romans chapter one, verses one through seven. This is called expository preaching. And you know what I've told you, your job is to be expository what? Listeners, your capacity to know truth is contingent to how well you pay attention. The first 
principle of obedience is what? Hearing. Because faith comes by hearing. Not pretending to hear, being able to hear. This is what J.R. was saying. The hearing ear and the seeing eye is not a consequence of your natural nature, but it's a gift of God. All men cannot hear and not all men can see. And none of us have faith apart from the gift of God. And so what we must learn is how to hear. And that's why we have what is called the euangelion, which is called the proclamation of the gospel. What is the proclamation of the gospel? It's God's voice in the good news of the message of the redemption that's in Christ. And the mandate on your part and mine is to hear it and believe it. And that's why we preach the gospel that men and women might come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is going to give us in these opening verses of Romans chapter one, just some gems of an idea of how important the promise of the gospel is and the preaching of the gospel. So, you know, we're going to be here for about nine months. We will be working through the Pilgrim's Progress for about seven months, and I will closely tie them together so you can actually benefit from that beautiful allegory that becomes for us a parable of what it means to be called out of darkness into his marvelous light. What it means to walk this pilgrim pathway, discerning between people who will hurt you and people who will help you what it means to be sanctified by the helpers in order that you might in turn also become a helper of other people's faith. Don't you want that in 2024? And we're going to be very serious about it. So I'm encouraging you to follow along. Again, you'll be able to participate in Q&A and engage us in the studies and may God take you deeply into his word, cause your roots to go down deep in the soil so that you bear fruit upward and outward and see men and women come into either a saving knowledge of Christ or recover from the foolishness of the sinfulness that has caused them to go astray. We got all kind of saints out there who are now operating as ain'ts and they need to be brought back into the sphere of the kingdom of God. Do they not? All right. So Under point number one, let's begin to work our way, cultivate our way through something that really does require a lot of thought. The promise of apostolic what? Preaching. Look at verse one. Paul says this in verse one and two. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle. If you see the little italicis, to be, it's not in the original language. He's called an apostle. That's a description. That's not a verb. It's not that he's being called to be an apostle. He's called by title an apostle. Y'all got that? Now notice what it goes on to say, separated unto the gospel of God. Paul was called an apostle and then he was separated unto the gospel. Now those parallels were also trickle down to you and me because the same that things that happened to the apostle should happen to all of us as we shall see. It goes on to say over in verse two, which he had promised aforetime by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Pastor, what is he saying? That the apostolic ministry was something that the Old Testament prophets proclaimed would occur. The way we want to understand Paul's opening address is that he's saying that he is something that God made him to be. 
And what God made him to be was promised in the Old Testament. So now this is really important for you to capture if you're going to be an expository listener. The subject here is his apostleship. He's affirming that God called him and then he's using the only infallible text to prove it. And that's the word of the living God. Like you got all kind of people running around talking about being called of God. And we know better by their character, nature and conduct that it can't possibly be true because the vast majority of the way they behave is contrary to the word of God. Am I making some sense? And so when Paul says God has called me to be an apostle, just as the scriptures say, what people can do is go back to the word and see it so. Sub points A and B in our outline will work us through that. What I love about what Paul is saying here, when we read it in the English version, Paul, a servant of Jesus, right? Literally, Paul, a slave of Jesus, Right. It's a term that we don't like today. Very pejorative. But I've told you before, as we make our way through the outline, there are no one that you ever know, have known or will know that's not a slave to something. Everybody's a slave to something. You are either a slave of God or a slave of the devil. There are no two ways about it. You lost your freedom in Adam, so did I. And if we would ever be recovered from the bondage of sin, the captivity of Satan, we will have to become the slaves of another. And that's why Jesus came to set the captives free. When he liberates us, he liberates us unto himself. Do you know what that means? You get owned by somebody else. And what I love about Paul is Paul is not ashamed to be called a slave. Do you see it? He says, I am a slave of God's message. This is going to become clear. Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. You remember the account. You remember the origin. When Paul was working for the devil and he was operating out of that pseudo Zionist system and therefore persecuting the believer. And that's how you know you are part of a pseudo Zionist system. When you are persecuting the believer, Christ intervened on the road to Damascus and shut Paul down, didn't he? I told you this many times. Paul had papers from the wrong high priest and the true high priest intervened and shut him down and changed his contract. This is Jesus talking to Paul. He says, for I will show him how great things he must what? Suffer for my name's sake. This is why Paul called himself a slave, because his will was no longer the dominant will. The will of God was his will. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so as a slave, you know you don't get to exercise prerogative of will. You have to submit to your master. Now, you can do it lovingly or begrudgingly. I'm here to tell you when you're a slave of Christ, you will learn to do it lovingly. There's no better master than Jesus. And it's important for you to know, because if even if God set you free for you to be your own boss, you'd mess it up again. You don't have enough sense to get to glory. This is what the Pilgrim's Progress is going to teach us. We need helpers to get to glory. You need to be confirmed that you are a child of the king. You are a slave of the master and the seal of grace is on your life. And this is what Paul is affirming for. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Look at verse 17 and we'll continue. 
And Ananias, when his way entered into his house, putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto you in the way, has, ha, uh, as thou camest, has sent me, that you might receive your sight and be filled with the spirit of the living God. Now Paul is about to be ushered into his ministry, is he not? So he clearly states he's a slave of God's message. He's a slave of God's message. Subpoint B, as it is written. I want to just give you a few verses to affirm this. The Old Testament told us that God would send and give shepherds that would give us knowledge and understanding. Jeremiah 3.15. Capture this one. This is Jeremiah is about 600, 700 years before Jesus. And here's a promise. Always remember this. God is way ahead of you. By the time God shows up, he's much further down the road than you. All right. So by the time you come into a reality of God's blessing in your life, it was promised long ago. Listen to what he says. I will give you what? I will give you what? According to their own heart, according to their own plans, according to their own schemes, their own agendas, their own wild ideas or according to my heart. Now, that's a good promise, isn't it? That's a good promise. Now, the only caveat here that might be of concern is whether or not you're Christ sheep. Because if you're not Christ sheep, you won't know whether or not you're being led by a hook or a crook. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Another they will not follow. And what God works through are faithful men who proclaim the gospel of the glory of God in Christ and expound scripture in the most accurate and adequate way by which you can hear the voice of Jesus. If the preaching and teaching does not explain, exalt the word of God and the glory of Christ in it, that's not the voice of the shepherd. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? So 700 years before Paul, God says, I will give you pastors according to my heart, which will what? Feed you with knowledge and understanding. That presupposes sheep are hungry. I live in a generation where sheep are not hungry. Shepherds feed the sheep with spiritual knowledge and understanding. Both of those terms we have learned are gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. The spirit of knowledge and the spirit of wisdom. They're all gifts. They are given to you and I in order that we might understand the gospel more better, more accurately, and enjoy Jesus more fully. Is that not true? This is why you must, you're going to be challenged this year with Pilgrim as to the little scroll that was in his hand. Because you won't make progress in the kingdom of God if you get far away from the scroll. Am I making some sense? And so you got a lot of people think they can do Jesus and their Bible's somewhere gathering dust. But the text is telling us that feeding takes place when the soul hungers for the word of God and the word of God is explained and taught and they're able to resonate with it as the voice of Christ in their soul. The word of God is the key to the relationship between the believer and God himself. So may God give you a hunger for his word this year, okay? Because if you don't have a hunger for God's word, you don't have a hunger for God. I'll help you. As it is written, I love the way Jesus put it in Luke chapter 11, verse 49. Christ himself now is going to quote the Old Testament and affirmation of what I just stated. Listen to what he says. Therefore also said the what? The wisdom of God, the wisdom of God. What he's saying is the Old Testament scriptures, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Pentateuch is the wisdom of God. I want you all to capture that. Okay, 
The old, all they had was the Old Testament at that time. Y'all keeping up with me? No New Testament. So Jesus is quoting Torah, is he not? He's quoting the Pentateuch. He's quoting the Tanakh, right, from Genesis to Malachi. He says that is called the wisdom of God. We believe that, right? We believe God's word is a reflection of God, and God is the all-wise God, is he not? Why wouldn't his word reflect who he is if he is omniscient, if he knows everything? If he's impeccable in his knowledge, his word would. So Jesus is giving praise to God for his word. He says, and I will send them what? Prophets and what? There it is. That's the promise of the Old Testament that God would send prophets and apostles. Now, those of you who know your Bible well, you know that Pauline theology is consistent, coherent, rational. He says the same things over and over again in the book of Ephesians. He said, as I'll quote later on down the line, that the church is built upon the foundation of Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, the prophets and the apostles. So there you go again. If you and I have a relationship with God, it's via the work of Jesus, it's via work the, uh, the work of the Old Testament prophets, and it's via the work of the New Testament apostles. They are the foundation to the church, i.e. your Bible is Jesus, the apostles, and the prophets. Am I making sense? That's how you know you are on a solid foundation theologically. And Jesus says, and some of them they shall what? Slay and persecute. That's because you're slaves of Jesus. And you remember what Jesus said, right? The servant or the slave is not greater than his master. If they did that to me, they'll do it also to you, right? And so you and I, we are utterly thankful to God for the sacrifice of the apostles who laid down their life for this message of redemption by which you and I are saved. We have also been called into that same suffering. This is one of the ways you know you are a believer. This is what the Pilgrim Progress will teach you. Suffering will affirm your sonship, right? All whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And if you be without chastisement, you're a bastard. If you plan church and don't know how to embrace trouble and struggle and difficulties and hindrances, that'll teach you how to call upon God who will preserve you in time of trouble so that you know your only mechanism for escape is trusting him, as J.R. said, then you're not a child of God. We're going to help you this year with your walk as God will give us grace. So he goes on to say in the book of Acts chapter 10, 43, this is where Peter now has taken up the same mantle. He's preaching to Cornelius and his band, and he plainly says, to Cornelius and his band, all the prophets testified of Jesus. Yes. Is that what it says? Acts chapter 10, 43, look at To him, who is to him? Jesus. To him gave all the prophets witness. In other words, from Genesis to Malachi, all the prophets, right? All 39 of them in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, gave witness to who? This book is about him. It's called the great hymn book. Don't ever forget it. And where you and I are not constantly embracing a healthy diet of a Christocentric, God-exalting, Bible-based, sound, exegetical, sound, expository teaching, you can't know Jesus. He's known in the preaching and teaching of his word, is he not? So not only does 
Peter teach us, to him gave all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believes in him shall receive what? Remissions of sin. Tag that last part because that's going to be the essence of Paul's conclusio. Tag remission of sin. Tag it because I can tell you the greatest utterance, expression, expostulation that could ever be heard on the ears of human beings is that your sins are forgiven. I don't care what your situation is to hear God say your sins are forgiven is the greatest news in your life. But there was a great cost that brought about that 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 declaration, too. This is what we want to work through. I love the way this is set forth. So one more time, let's look in Acts chapter 17, verse two. I just want you to anchor down in this thought. This thought is, is that you and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the infallibility and the endurability of the word of God. There's no purpose for you and I gathering together with these kind of numbers, talking about praising God, and we don't have God's text. I done already told you over and over again, God texts us and you need to answer his text. You got all kind of other texts you answer. Answer this text. Get back with God, okay? Tell him you heard him. You received his message. As Paul's manner was, is the Greek term for a custom, a pattern. He went in unto them, the synagogue, and three days he reasoned with them where? Out of the scriptures. This is what we mean by a biblical church. He reasoned with them out of the scripture. He's not talking foolishness. He's not out way out in la la land. He's not giving you all kind of anecdotal stories. He's actually bringing you into the sphere of the kingdom of God via the word of God. When the word of God is open, now we can hear from God. When the word of God is open, now we can we can sense the presence of God because his voice is speaking to us. Is it not? There is almost no other reality of your experience that is more germane than to be under the teaching and preaching of God's word. You and I can have a wonderful experience in the world in many different ways. God is good, is he not? He's good. But there ain't nothing like the word of God when it's opened up and our soul is in a position to hear from God through it. This is why Peter, James, and John said on the Mount of Transfiguration, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay right here as the Father affirms the Son and the Son is glorified in our presence. And that's what the Holy Ghost does when the Word of God is soundly taught. Jesus is glorified in our hearts, is he not? And this is the way you can know that you are a child of God. One more thing. Remember the point that we're uh, categorizing is that Paul is a slave of the message as it is what? As it is written. The last example is Luke 24, 7. You should know this one. I love the Lord Jesus because before he left this world, he gave us a model and a pattern. He gave us a paradigm of what faithful teaching should be. Now, this here is going to be a snippet of the pilgrim's progress. You guys know our two brothers who left Jerusalem on their way back to Emmaus, who were ignorant of the things that occur at the death of Christ. You guys remember that? And do you remember those two brothers as they were walking the Emmaus Road that Jesus came alongside of them? Do you guys remember that? Now, Jesus came alongside of them. They did not come alongside of Jesus. They weren't looking for Jesus. See, if Jesus don't hunt you down, you're lost for good. But Jesus is the great shepherd that comes for his sheep, is he not? 
And here these two brothers getting ready to have a conversation that amounted to heresy because they did not know that he rose from the dead. And when the master loves you, he's not going to leave you in error. So the Lord Jesus comes along and begins to talk to them, does he not? And what is the first thing he does after he corrects them for being slow of faith? He opens the scriptures and he expounds through all of the scriptures. That's our Greek term for hermeneutics. He does a hermeneutic from Genesis to Malachi, speaking of the things concerning himself. What a Bible study that was to go from Jerusalem to those brothers' house with the Lord Jesus. What, what the disciples, these two disciples are doing is enjoying the presence of Jesus in their life. And beginning at Moses and all the what? That's the Old Testament. So Jesus, now I want you to get this because I want this to drill down. Now, what kind of version of the Bible did Jesus have? King James? All right. What was it made of? Leather? Pleather? Vinyl? He didn't have a Bible in his hand. He had the Bible in his heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereunto according to his word, right? Let the word of God dwell richly in you with all wisdom, and, and, and admonishment, teaching them to observe everything that God has called you to do. So the scriptures had to be in his mouth. Boy, what, a, what a Bible study to walk with the master and have him start in Genesis and say, that's about me. Exodus, that's about me. Leviticus, that's about me. Deuteronomy, that's about me. Numbers, that's about me. Joshua, that's about me. Judges, that's about me. Samuel, that's about me. Kings and Chronicles, that's about me. Isaiah and Malachi, it's all about me. And you know the impact, don't you? They got to that brother's house and Jesus acted like he was going to keep going. He said, look, Jesus, you got to hang out with us. And that's how you know the Holy Ghost has gotten a hold of you because you never put a time limit on God talking to you. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, this is right worship. It is not right when this is not happening. The rest is entertainment. We need to hear from God. Point number two the perfections of God's son to be set forth. Look at what Paul says in uh, verse three and four. So he opens up affirming that he is an apostle and slave of Christ and to the message separated unto God by it, which God had promised before by his prophets in the scriptures. Notice now the subject of the content of the scripture, as I stated, concerning his what? His son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's beautiful. So again, we're doing expository teaching right now. Look at the line concerning. That's a Greek term that means the 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 arena, the context, the epicenter of the scriptures is concerning Jesus. Did that make some sense? So the prophets were teaching concerning. And I like the first construction. I want you to get it. His what? Son. Huios. Concerning God's son. Huios. The scriptures are concerning God's what? Concerning God's what? Right. It's important for you to get that child of God. Because all kinds of people will call Jesus all kinds of things. 
but the Son of God. Very God of very God, bearing equality with the Father and with the Spirit, who is the creator of the universe and the creator of the world. They'll call him a good master, a good teacher, a fine rabbi, but they have to actually be lying when they say that because if they don't believe what he said, because he said, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And no man has seen God at any time. Only he who is in the bosom of the Father, he has exegeted him. He has explained him. He has made him known. That means we cannot know God apart from Christ, who is the revelation of the invisible God visibly. Do you guys understand where we're going here? So what Paul does is maintains a hierarchy of Christ's identity that's worthy of your notice. Because you see, you can hang out with all kind of people as long as Jesus is kind of cool. But once you make him the top dog, those is fighting words. If you make Jesus curious, Lord, if you make him sovereign, if you make him to be the creator of the universe, if you make him to be the master then everybody who does not know him as such will have a battle with you. Am I making some sense? So you're going to have to determine in the year 2024, who is Jesus to you? So he has been revealed to Paul as the son of the living God. And I've told you, if he's the son of God, the father, that makes him God also. They cannot have compromised natures. Y'all follow what I'm saying. Then he says concerning his son, then he calls him Yesu Christu. Do you guys see that? That's a different title. That becomes what we call the nominative of the character of the person. I don't have a long time to unpack it, but you and I deal with what we call nominatives, proper names and phrases of things. Like uh, you, can, you, can, you can name a product, Tide Soap, right? You can be able to give the proper name of it, but not necessarily know the content in it. It's one thing to know a person's name. It's another thing to know their character. It's another thing to know their reputation, to know their personality. That you may know me as PJ does not at all mean you know me. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So when we are talking about using the name, which there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved, when we use the word Yeshua Christo, we are saying you better know what Jesus means. You better know what Messiah means. You better know what Christos means. You better know what Creo means. You better know that he is the only anointed one that God chose to save his people from their sins. You better know that there's no greater name than the name Yehosh. God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name, the character, the reputation, the quality, the content, the exhibitional content, the irrefutable evidence of the impeccability of Jesus. Can I go on giving him accolades? Because this is the way you talk about Jesus. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. He's all in between. He's the amen of God. Unless you're talking about Jesus like that, the good likelihood is you don't know him that well. And as we go through the Pilgrim's Progress, I want you to know him that well. 
I want you to be it because you're going to learn that pilgrim after he is delivered from an arduous burden on his back called his sin. He's going to learn how to praise Jesus and stand for Jesus even before he gets to glory. This is an evidence that you're God's sheep. It's an evidence that you're God's sheep. So this is what Paul is teaching when he talks about under point number two, the perfections of God's son. There are three uh, three, four subpoints I want to uh, capture. First, God's son is the what? He's the subject of scripture. Psalm 40, verse seven. You should know it by heart by now, right? Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me, not you, not them, not that denomination, not that denomination, not that church, not that system. No one comes unto the father, but by me. Heaven's gate is only open because of Jesus, who is the door. Not the church. The church cannot open the doors of the kingdom. God is the one that opens the door. And God is the one that shuts the door. And how miserable would sinners be if the only way they could get in the kingdom is if the church opened the door? When the church don't preach the gospel 90% of the time. So I, whatever door they open it, I don't know what it is. But when people go into it, they do not matriculate. They do not ascend. They do not make it to glory because that means that the church gets to steal the glory of God. Jesus is the one that saves and he saves alone. And I don't care where you are. You could be in a crack house. You could be in jail. You could be in prison. You could be in the desert. You can be in the greatest straits. If you've heard the gospel, the Holy Ghost can come rescue you from wherever you are. You don't need to hurry up and get to church. Am I making some sense? I'm so glad he sent the third person, aren't you? Because the third person knows where you are before you do. Right? He'll come get you when it's time. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And I love what Paul does here now in, in sub point B. I want you to capture it. He is our Lord. Look at the construction. This is called the first rule of hermeneutics is paying careful attention to what it says, not what it means. You can't know what it means before you know what it says. This is called observation. Notice what the text says. Can I go back to the verse? I just want to make sure they get it. I want you to get it. Notice what he says. We're at verse four. Verse four. Notice what he says here. Um, Verse three. Sorry, verse three. We'll get there. Notice what he says in verse three. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, their Lord, my Lord, our Lord. This is a first person plural thing. Y'all better love on Paul. Because Paul is not an an exclusivist. He doesn't shut the people of God out. He doesn't just talk about himself. He said, our Lord, because Christ is Lord of all. Is he not? He may very well be your Lord, but he's not your Lord exclusively. Scoot over. He's been my Lord for 45 years. Get over. Make some room on the pew. When we get to heaven, you got to sit by me. There ain't no single chairs in glory. The pews extend out as far as eternity. God will have a people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, a number that no man knows from the beginning of time to the end of time. That's a big old pew. Is that a big pew? Scoot over. He is Lord of all. 
And you and I need to have that kind of broad alacrity and sense of presentation of Jesus to others. Don't be stingy about the one person who can save anybody from anything, anywhere, at any time. Don't be stingy. In fact, just to help you with your evangelism, whenever you come across people, tell them he is already their Lord. You don't vote for Jesus. He ain't a president. God has highly exalted him to his right hand. He is Lord of all. The only thing you do with sinners is tell them bow now or bow later. Did that make some sense? See, the decree of the gospel is a summons. It is not an invitation. Now, see, you know I'm at the end of the year, so I'm tearing up all kind of bad stuff right now. We're going into the new year. Stop inviting people to Jesus. Summons them. Summons them. Summons them. I have a summons from the king for you. I have a summons from the king for you. The king is calling you. The king is calling you. Y'all understand that? The king is calling you. Son, daughter, grandchildren, nieces and nephews. The king is calling you, baby. The king is calling you. He's not inviting you. He's calling you. See what I'm getting at? This is very important. Stop talking about just your Lord. He's everybody's Lord. He runs the whole show. He's the despot. He's the curios. He's the Lord. He's the magistrate. He's the king. Tell everybody Jesus is already Lord. You can't vote him in. You can't, you can't, you know, affirm him in. He's already Lord. That's the way the apostles preached in Acts 3. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Right? No voting. He's not president. He ruler. See, if you can make Jesus president, you can take him off his throne. He will not be contingent upon your vote. The father voted for him. All right, point number two under our sub point C. He is our Lord. That's why we read in Matthew 28, 18 and 19, this mandate. This mandate, Matthew 28, verse 18. Listen to what it says. You guys know it, but I'll let the verse get up there uh, for you. And Jesus came and spake unto the disciples saying what? All power, not some power. That's all power. That would be in the uh, Latin construction, omniscience, omnipotence. Omnipotence means the scope of his power covers every dimension of the universe. Did that make some sense? Like there's no place where Jesus doesn't have authority. Now, authority is derived. Authority is imputed. He gives all kind of Lilliputians. You and I are Lilliputians. We have authority with him. He gives us authority. There is authority of a secular nature, of a sacred nature, of a political nature, of a pious, all kinds of authorities in the exousia sense, derived authority. But everybody that has been given authority by God has to give it back. Okay, y'all ready to learn something? I got you for about another 35 minutes. Are you a mama? How many mamas in the house ready? How many grandmamas in the house? Woo, you're getting a little thinner, but it's still there. Okay, how, how many great, how many great grandmamas in the house? Okay, a few more. Listen, you have authority three times over great grandmama because you had authority as a mother. You have authority as a grandmother and you have authority as a great grandmother. 
but it's authority that was deferred to you by God to execute your office. And when your work is done, you got to give it back. And then you also got to answer for it. Am I making some sense? I'm not going to let you daddies off the hook. How many of you guys are fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers? See there? You have authority derived from God. And that authority is for you to do your job as a father, as a grandfather, as a great-grandfather. And you're going to meet God one day, and you're going to have to give that back. And God will ask, did you take that talent that I gave to you and do something with it? And by the way, the children you had are not even yours. They're God's too. All the fruit of the womb is the Lord's. They're just on loan from God. So he gives you authority to be a blessing to them so they can grow up and hopefully be a blessing to somebody else. Am I making some sense? But Jesus has all direct and consummate authority. He is Lord of all. And he said to them, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Verse 19, therefore, therefore, because I have all power. Therefore, because I have all power. Now, this is worthy of really breaking into. I'm not going to do it here. Because Christians don't believe that he has all power. You can tell by the way people act. The first one is, when you actually believe that he has all power, are y'all ready? Then you'll go. You're not going if you don't believe he has all power. See, he gave us, this is called an adverb. He says, go ye therefore and do what? Teach all nations. So the actual verb is teach. Teach as you go. Because your fundamental job in mind is to share the gospel with men and women. To give them the summons. Am I making some sense? Right. That's your fundamental job. Not exclusive, but fundamental. And if you're not sharing the gospel, you have failed to understand why God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm making some sense. Am I making some sense? You know I am because it hurts, right? That's how you know I'm making sense. Because it hurts. Right. So when you and I are calling ourselves Christians, you and I are being conformed to the image of Christ. This is what Bunyan is going to teach you. And it's in order that you share this wonderful message with other people. It's not contingent. It's something you do. A believer is not merely what you do. It's who you are. Am I making some sense? Out of the abundance of the heart, doth the mouth what? If the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart, that means my heart has to be changed to be made compatible with God's word. So what comes into my heart comes out of my mouth. And if it's in my heart, it's going to naturally come out. Just bump me. You're going to get scripture. Am I making some sense? And I'm going to try to be nice about it, but I am in between grace and glory. But I am going to try to be nice about it. But you bump me enough and I'm going to try to find a way to talk about that flat tie you got turning into the reason you struggling with your sin. Because you need grace on the tire of your soul so your journey can be smoother on your way to glory. I'm here to tell you with flat tires, you can't get up that incline and the downcline or decline is kind of rough. And you look kind of bad when you got one flat tire and you're hobbling up and down the street, right? And God wants you and I to be able to progress. This is called the pilgrim's progress. He don't want you stagnant or stuck, right? He's not stagnant and stuck. Every day, 24 hours is brand new. 
God ain't stuck. God's going somewhere. Right? And you and I are as well. And it's a matter of understanding who we are and how we get there in terms of the journey. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, verse 20. And notice what he says as a caveat in verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And look, I am with you, even to the end of the world. This is why we know Christians are not serious. First of all, the king gives us a command to go. Secondly, he tells us there's no reason for you to be afraid. I have all authority. And thirdly, he says, I'm going to be with you when you go. Now, why is he going to be with you when you go? Because he knows you can't get it done by yourself. That's what Pilgrim is going to teach us. You don't get down the road of progress without helpers. Am I making some sense? All right. So under uh, point number two, the perfections of God's son laid out as he is Lord. Thirdly, he is the present and final Davidic ruler. Go back to the text. We're doing exposition. I want you to comprehend this because there's a reason for it. I'm in verse three now of Romans chapter one concerning his son, one, Jesus Christ, our Lord, two, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, three. Do you guys see that? That expression is important. The Apostle Paul could have said that Jesus was born of a woman, as he did in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, made under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. He could have said Jesus was born of Mother Mary. Couldn't he have said that? He didn't have to say that because Mother Mary goes all the way back to the first Mary to whom the first promise was given, and that's Mother Eve. Do y'all remember the proto-evangel I've taught you before? Genesis 3.15, listen to it. Here's what it says in Genesis 3.15. Now God is talking. In fact, it's the Lord Jesus. He's talking to the devil, is he not? Listen to what he says. And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and who? There it is. The first proto-evangel. This is the message of the gospel that God gave. You're in Bible study, so learn something. God is the one who first preached the gospel. It's his gospel and the good news he gave not to Adam or Eve, but to the devil. He told the devil, I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to kill you through the seed of the woman. Did y'all get that? Now, it wasn't good news to the devil, but it was good news to Eve. And it was good news to Abel. And it was good news to Noah. And it was good news to Sarah. And it was good news to all who believe the gospel in the Old Testament. Am I making some sense? Listen carefully. God is the one that starts this gospel thing. He's the one that promises the seed. So the first installment or what we would call the first uh, covenant uh, installation of the seed doctrine is with the woman in Genesis chapter three. She is the woman. But the next time you and I hear about the seed doctrine is in the call that God brings to Abraham. Because in Abraham, uh, in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God said to Abraham, of your seed will I have all nations of men come unto me. Who is that seed? It's the same one that was back in Genesis 3.15. That seed is Jesus. Now, the emblem in Genesis 12.15 and 17 was circumcision. Y'all got that? So the seed and circumcision go together with the Abrahamic promise. The promise to the woman of the seed had the sign of the coats of skin. Y'all got that? the coats of skin, the shedding of blood. It would be the seed that would have to shed his blood. The next time the seed doctrine is given to Abraham. 
in that doctrine, he told Abraham, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of every one of your boys, because they will point to the final seed, Jesus, who would not be uh, immediately of the line of Abraham, but of the line of who? David. David. This is the way the gospel of Matthews opens up. This is the way the gospel of Luke opens up. Did you not know that Mary was of the tribe of Judah? Did you not know that Joseph was also of the tribe of Judah? So that Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah, of that lineage of David. That's what we talked about last week, right? We always do because the child that is born is born a king. What Paul is talking about here is the seed who is the king. Going back to our text so we can move on. Only a few more things to note. So when we go concerning his son, we're referring to his deity, who is our Lord. We're concerning, we're referring to his role as our savior, which was made of the seed of David. Now we're talking about his monarchical rule as the king of Zion, the city of David, the Dawid of God. Did that make some sense to you, child of God? All right, just in case you don't get it as clearly. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you find people who believed in the promise of the Old Testament coming into contact with Jesus, like the blind men and the lame men and people that needed Jesus, what did they call him when they called on him to do something for him? Son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. That's Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. That's Revelation chapter three. And it's the final verse in Revelation twenty-two, sixteen. Pull it up. Your Bible closes with Jesus being called the son of David. Y'all keeping up with me? I do want to go on, but I'm showing you how we do exegetical expository teaching of the text. Otherwise, when you read your Bible, it's all a kind of flat line merging of things that don't say anything to you. And there's a lot in verses one through three of Romans, is it not? Listen to what he says. I, Jesus. Now, that's a great way to settle all arguments. Who wrote this book? Jesus did. If he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, if he says, I come in the volume of the book. And here we are. We're only six verses from the end of the, old, uh, of the New Testament. Jesus is speaking explicitly. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you of these things. Remember that for those of you who are journeying with me through the pilgrim's progress, because angels were sent to pilgrim to help him get down his way. As angels are sent to you to help you get down your way too. They just happen to be human angels. Am I making some sense? Listen to what he says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you These things in the what? These things in the churches. If there's any institution that should know the mysteries of God, it's the church. These things are spoken in parables that it might be made known to you. You and I should know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. They should be common to it. I'm not talking about some deep, weird, Masonic mysteries. I'm not talking about that crap. I'm talking about the mystery of the gospel. I'm talking about how the word of God has laid out the centrality of the redemptive work of God in Christ. Am I making sense? 
I'm not talking about getting caught up in all kinds of Kabbalah and wild schemes out there, Gnostic writings, which a lot of us are prone to do when we don't actually have the key to the depths of the mysteries of Scripture. Now we're ready out and to get out there and get wrapped up in zodiac signs and, and mythology and all of these pagan existential New Age religions to get some depth. The Word of God is as deep as you're going to ever get. The problem with it is, is it doesn't glorify you. <laughs> Am I telling the truth? This, this, this is why you'll read it for five minutes and then you'll get caught up in somebody lying to you about you being God. They love to tell you you're God. That's the first lie the devil told in Genesis 3.1. Y'all see what I'm getting at? We're gods. You Lilliputian. There's not one incommunicable attribute of God you can demonstrate. You're stupid, so that means you're not wise. You're impotent, that means you don't have any power. You're limited, that means you can't be everywhere at the same time. Am I making some sense? You can't confer good or evil on people in any significant way. You're not God. You need to hurry up and get over that. There's only one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. He is the God man. So now I'm, I'm going to help you. you, you you're going to be closer to being saved the sooner you get rid of that foolishness. The sooner you get rid of the foolishness of thinking you're God, the sooner you would be saved. Because God will not share his glory with another. It's important for you to know it. So look at Revelation twenty two sixteen. Notice what he says. I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify unto you of these things in the churches. I am the root an offspring of who? I am the root and offspring of who? Can I explain that? How can you be the root and offspring at the same time unless you're God? How can you be the root of something that bears fruit and the root is always before the fruit unless you're God? See what I'm getting at? Now Jesus had that battle with the Pharisees when they came to him and Jesus had taken the loaves of bread on a Sabbath day. Remember I told you Jesus and the disciples would get up in the morning as they was headed to the gospel church and they would go through the cornfields and they would eat corn. Did y'all know that? Eat corn. And according to the grammar, they were doing it every week. Every week they was making hot water cornbread before they went to church. <laughs> every week, every week, hot water cornbread, okay? Uh, and, and, and the Pharisees said, why are your disciples always breaking the Sabbath laws? And Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I can do whatever I want to. Isn't that what he said? Stay with me. Then he said, do you not remember in the days of King David when he went into the temple and took the showbread and fed his servants? And how David himself said of Jesus, my Lord said unto your Lord, our Lord said unto his Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. He asked them, how could David, if you're making him the top man, actually call Messiah, Messiah, Jesus, his Lord, unless Jesus was before David? Am I making some sense? He's the root of David, and he is also the offspring of David. He is the root of David in his deity. He's the offspring of David in his humanity. Am I making sense? We are establishing again the hypostases of his deity and humanity. It makes sense to us, right? These are not great profound mysteries. It's simply the fact that as he said to Abraham, 
in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Those are bold claims unless they're true. They're bold claims unless they're true. And I love this. He's the offspring of David and he's the bright and morning what? He's the beginning of the new day. Jesus is the beginning of the new day. If ever a new day occurs in your life, he's the beginning of it. The day star must rise in your heart and obliterate the darkness of your fallen nature, your sinful condition, and the light of God's glory in the person of Christ must begin to emerge, right? Arise and Christ will give you light. And that's what the preaching of the gospel is about, right? God has caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to shine in our hearts. This is how you know you've been illuminated. This is part of our study. We'll be explaining the difference between being awakened and being enlightened. Because a lot of people are woke awake for a minute. All you got to do is scare people. They'll come to church for five minutes. That's being an awakened sinner. That's not being an illuminated sinner. Am I making some sense? Awaken, sin. Oh, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. And as soon as the sunshine comes back out, they back at it again. They were never illuminated. The question you will have to ask is, has God illuminated my heart? Has he put a permanent light switch in it to cut the lights on to show me the difference between hell and heaven and how to get there and the person of Jesus? Has that light compelled me to get up and start on my pilgrim's progress? Good questions, aren't they? Yes. These are the things you don't have to work through. David's the, uh, the Lord Jesus, the son of David, is the bright and morning star. Let's get on now to our final point. I love this. Here's what Paul says over in verse 4, and we're going to work our way through verse 7 and close. If Jesus is the son, Huios, that means he, he is derived from his father, bearing his deity. If he is Jesus Christ, our Lord, that is, he is the master of all and savior of all who believe. And if he's the son of David, that is, he is the true monarch of the true Zion kingdom. He is also declared the son of God with power according to the spirit of what? By the resurrection from the dead. Do you guys see verse four? I want to anchor down in that as we get ready to close. I want you to ca uh, capture that with me. So what Paul does right here is he explains the hinge pin of the hope of the gospel. And I want you guys to capture this as well. The first thing he says is that Jesus was declared to be the son of God. Do You guys see that? He was declared to be the son of God. Now, we could easily say that he was declared to be the son of God in the Old Testament. We, we, could, we can easily say that. This is Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish from the way. I can give you all kinds of verses. Are y'all keeping up with me? Isaiah chapter 9, 6. Right unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Right? We could talk about that from the Old Testament again. As the seed, he is the son, is he not? He's declared to be the son. But here, when Paul says he's declared to be the son of God, he's talking about a particular event that affirmed his status as to be exactly what he claimed to be when he came. Let me see if we can anchor down in this. The one contention that Jesus had with all the rulers from the time he left the temple in Luke chapter 2, remember his mom and, and stepdaddy all came looking for him, and he says, how is it that you are looking for me? 
That's Luke 2, around verse 43 or 44. He says, do you not know that I must be about my what? About my what? My father's business. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is the highest form of blasphemy, unless it's true. Unless it's true. So everywhere he went, he did not, he was not ashamed to call himself the son of God. How do we know? He kept using the first person, personal pronoun, my patir, my father, my father, which sent me, my father who is in heaven, my father who is greater than all. Y'all remember that? My father, my father, my meat is to do the will of my father. And what does he say when he's hanging on the cross? Father, father, from the time he was born till the time he died, he told everybody his daddy was God. Do you know what happened when he hung on that cross? We'll be dealing with it in about three months. A centurion soldier came and pierced him in his side and out came water and blood, the qualifications for saving sinners. And what did that centurion say? This is the son of God. Y'all got that? This truly is the son of God. The centurion knew he was God. The disciples knew he was God. Pilate knew that he was innocent. So he was the lamb of God that came to take away our sins, our sins from the world. All the people that followed him came to understand that he was also God. But why was he declared the son of God? Please get this. Because he rose again from the dead. Y'all got that? What we're getting ready to close in on is the doctrine of the resurrection. Without the doctrine of the resurrection, we have no gospel. There is no good news if Christ didn't rise from the dead. The implications are catastrophic. If he didn't rise from the dead, I mean, I can be here a long time because the doctrine of the resurrection is every promise, every prophecy, every pattern, every picture in the Old Testament of killing a lamb as a sacrifice for our sin. And then the sinner being let free because one day there would come a lamb who would take away our sins forever and that lamb would rise again from the dead. Y'all keep, y'all understanding me? I mean, I could stay in the Old Testament a long time, but the grand archetypal model is Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah. Abraham, the father, Isaac, the son, this is the gospel. And Isaac going up to the top of the mountain, understanding the doctrine of sacrifice, said, now, daddy, look, I got the wood and you got the fire. But can I ask you a question? Where is the lamb? I would have asked the question too. And this is what Jesus meant when he says, lo, I come in the volume of the book, patterns and pictures and prophecies, right? And this is what Jesus was saying in a pattern when he was in the garden of Gethsemane crying out, Father, if there be another way. Y'all keeping up with me? If there be any other way, that's his humanity. He was not sinning. He was being honest. He was letting us know the immeasurable magnitude of his suffering. You and I can never know what he went through. Don't even try. 
and don't equate your suffering with his. The, the yoke that Christ gives us is a light yoke. Isn't that what he says? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will rest you. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you'll find rest to your souls, for I am meek and humble. Isn't that what he said? So you and I have troubles, but they don't compare to his troubles. That's what Jeremiah said in in Lamentation. Come and see all that the Lord has done unto me. And when we peer into the sufferings of Christ, we realize we're peering into an inexplicable mystery. Are we not? The sufferings of Christ are so broad, so deep, so infinitely impactful that he could be the redeemer of men and women from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. All of the wrath of God is poured upon him, poured upon him in order that he might bring about a declaration of justification. I'm getting ready to talk about that. Are you saved? You're saved by faith. You're saved through grace. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works. God has declared you righteous, not because of your works, but because of his works. Am I making sense? Right. This is what we call imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness. Our sin was imputed to him. Hell was poured upon him and heaven was poured upon us. Those are shouting words right there. God has justified us from Everything from which we could never be justified by the works of the law, by the lamb that was slain. Am I making some sense? All right, I'm only halfway through this coin. It's a two-sided coin. Justification is the consequence of his death. Our salvation is the consequence of his life. Am I making some sense? His death put away our sins. His resurrection gave us life. Right? Because I live, you shall live also. I am the resurrection and the life. The one that believes on me shall never die. Am I making some sense? And this is why Paul is saying what he's saying there. I want you to comprehend the resurrection. Because again, the battle in the church today is the battle around whether or not we understand sound doctrine enough to stand on it. If you give up the resurrection, you have no gospel. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then he wasn't God. If Christ did not rise from the dead, he was a liar. If Christ did not rise from the dead, all of the prophets that came before him prophesying of his resurrection were liars. If Christ did not rise from the dead, God is a liar. And what I know about God is God cannot lie. God cannot change and God cannot fail. Am I making some sense? Somebody lying, but it ain't God. Stay with me. So the doctrine of the resurrection is critical for you to get because the doctrine of the resurrection is the security of your salvation. So like what Jesus told the disciples, even before he got to the cross, he says, the son of man goes as it is written and they're going to persecute him, malign him, and then they're going to kill him. And what did Jesus say? But the third day he shall rise again from the dead. The great news you heard in Acts chapter 1 is that he is risen. So please hear me, child of God, as we wind this down. The doctrine of the resurrection is what we call the capstone of the security 
of the totality of God's salvation for you and I. The death of Christ is the foundation. So when we talk about the foundation stone, we're talking about justification. Y'all got that? So in the Old Testament, when there was going to be a new edifice built, they would have what is called a foundation stone set in the ground. All the foundation stones set around it, buttressed up against that big foundation stone upon which the edifice would be built. Y'all got that? Jesus' death is the foundation stone. Christ had to die for our sins. But it's his resurrection that becomes the capstone on the top of the building, which means because Christ rose again from the dead, everyone for whom he died would be brought into the saving grace of Christ and enjoy the security of eternal life. This is why he said, because I live, you shall also live. Stay with me, I'm almost done. It's, this is called an ipso facto principle. This is not a contingent principle. If Jesus rose from the dead, there will be people that also rise from the dead. If you're a child of God, you have been risen from the dead. You were spiritually dead. Y'all hear me? You were so dead, you didn't know you were dead. This is what Pilgrim is going to teach us. And this is the other thing that people get offended about when you share the gospel properly. You tell men and women, look, you, you can't do nothing to save yourself. You're as lost as a goose. You're as dead as a doorknob. If God doesn't save you, you won't be saved. Well, pastor, how can I be saved? God has to save you. Because it's certainly not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, he reaches down and speaks life into your soul. Do y'all hear me? He speaks life into your soul. I'm going to give you one little other little caveat to help you be motivated to join me in the pilgrim's progress. The Bible tells us in John chapter 12, 31, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Men and women won't be drawn to God because they make a decision for Jesus to sign a contract. You're dead. Jesus had to purchase you while you were dead. Right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That man paid for me while I was dead. And when he hunted me down, he opened up the grave, spoke life into my soul, and said, Arise, Jesse. And I arose by the grace of God. And so did you. Now, when a man or a woman is born again, when you are truly born again, this is how you know it. You start to have irritations about yourself that you never did before. That's called life. That's called life. Being saved doesn't mean you immediately be comfortable. God doesn't save you to comfort you. He saves you to save you. First thing he's going to do is help you understand how bad a sinner you are. This is our conversation with Pilgrim for about three weeks. Because one of the things the Spirit of God has to do is draw you to himself. Isn't that what I just quoted? If I be lifted up, I'll draw you. He's drawing dead men spiritually. You and I are alive physically. We're alive psychologically. We're alive emotionally. And in our soul, man, we're craving all kinds of things. Am I making sense? And you will come to church in your soul, man, while you're dead spiritually. You will lot. There are some of you here now that are soul men. You're not spiritual men. You're soulish. You're soulish. See, and a soulish person is really coming for themselves. They're coming to get something from God. And it's not salvation. But what God's going to give you is salvation. 
Did that make some sense? Right. It's really extremely important that you understand that somebody somebody made the quip that a culture in which you and I operate out of the love of Vanity Fair. And this is part of the Pilgrim's Progress. When you grow up in Vanity Fair, the only kind of church you're used to going to is the church of the praise of men. When you grow up in Vanity Fair, the only church you're used to is the church of the praise of men. Because the church of the praise of men simply whitewashes the vanity of your heart, make you feel good while you're still lost in your sins. Did you hear what I just said? And there are plenty churches that are churches of the praises of men, where men are the focal point, where men and women are the object of praise, where if you give God enough money, he will bless you with this and that and the other thing. A gospel church does not praise men, but God. And that's why people who are immersed in Vanity Fair don't want to hear the gospel. See, the gospel is for real sinners. Those are pretend sinners. You understand that? Pretend sinners. We got them in here, too. They're pretend sinners. And you got to be careful of becoming a pretend sinner. This is why I want to take you through the pills of progress. Because the one thing that God despises is hypocrisy. You understand that? Right. God desires truth from the inward part. And from the hidden part, he'll give you wisdom. And the Bible's very clear. God resists the proud. This is what pilgrims are going to teach you. So God has to wake you up to the burden of your sinfulness. And he'll let you ride that burden for a long time before he takes it off your shoulder. Am I making some sense? Right. And so you'll hear a crazy preacher like PJ on the radio and you will not like what I say. And if God is drawing you, you keep cutting it back on. What a paradox that is. I don't like what he says, but I'm always listening at lunchtime. I'm like Micaiah. He don't ever speak good to me because all goodness belongs to God. If you and I have goodness, it's derived. He has to make us good. And the first thing he has to do is make us alive. You must be born again and you can't make yourself born again. There ain't no, there's no method of being born again. The child in your womb, mama, didn't negotiate with you about being born. Those were two external wills engaging in the negotiation. And the Holy Ghost and the Father has to negotiate in bringing you into life. By the time you know you are alive spiritually, you've been saved. Am I making sense? And what he's going to do is teach you of your sinfulness and your hopelessness so that you begin to cry, Abba, Father. That's how you know a sinner is starting to be drawn to God. He's miserable. She's miserable in herself. Am I making some sense? And then us ignorant Christian folk want to stop your misery. Come here, come here, and then start lying to you about you're all right. You're not all right. When you become all right, nobody will have to tell you. You'll be able to tell everybody, I'm all right. I'm all right. Right. You'll be able to say, it is well with my soul. Peace like a river attendeth my way. 
no matter what comes, I certainly can say it is well. It is well with my soul. And when you're able to make that testimony, then you know God's done something for you. In order that men don't get the glory in your salvation. The resurrection is what Paul is laying out here. Verse four, he declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And just as an addendum to close, because you've heard enough today, by whom Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Paul used this phrase again in Romans 16, 16, and it fundamentally means that as an apostle, his job is to summon men in every nation to believe the gospel. Did that make sense? And ladies and gentlemen, we're in the 21st century. I'm done here. Uh, We will be working through Romans for, for, uh, for a good year. And remember our theme verse, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Y'all got it? Because therein is this thing called righteousness and you need to know it. I taught you righteousness today. And there are many, many uh, constituents to righteousness that we need to know more fully about. But you will not know it apart from the gospel. The gospel reveals God's righteousness to us in that he raises Jesus from the dead and the doctrine of the resurrection is the pinnacle expression of God's righteousness. I want to say that so it can drill down in your head. Why do we know God is righteous? Because he raised his son from the dead and has exalted him on high as he said. Why do we know God is righteous? Because God has told all men that they are sinners and that the only hope is the gift of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? And he has affirmed it by raising him from the dead. This is what we will learn. The resurrection is the testimony that God is righteous. That means he has a right to save and he has a right to damn. Did that make some sense? He has a right to call all men and those who reject him will perish under his righteous judgment. It means he has a right to save you and me apart from our unsavableness by imputing to us Christ's righteousness. Did that make some sense? God is righteous in saving us. He's not unrighteous because he takes his son's righteousness, which is affirmed by his resurrection. No resurrection, no righteousness. Resurrection, righteousness. That righteousness now is given to people who are unrighteous. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That ought to be shouting words for you, sinner. Sinner.